Ladies and gentlemen, uh, my name is Jack Lund, and I had the pleasure of serving as your symposium chair. I will also be introducing our keynote speaker tonight. Before I do that, I'd like to take a second to thank Mrs. Meg Scalia Bryce, her husband John, nephews Tim, Will, and niece Katie for being with us tonight. Meg, our thoughts and prayers are with you and your family. actually got to meet your father once, but I can't say that by shaking hands with him, I knew him personally. However, like many of us here today, I developed a very personal relationship with him through his opinions. I had the experience of entering con law as an originalist. In truth, I knew a little something about what that meant theoretically, and basically nothing about what that meant in practice. So when I was confronted with the jurisprudential abominations of the Warren Court, I felt lost. I, I knew something was wrong. The opinion seemed to talk about everything but the Constitution itself. I read the text and I looked up the history, but I struggled mightily to offer better evidence or methods. In cases coming down after September 26, 1986, all of that changed. Now somebody had my back. Not just somebody, a really smart somebody who'd already thought about the things that I believed were important and had written them down in a clear, insightful, and intellectually provocative way. I think many of the people in this room developed an extremely personal relationship with your father in exactly this fashion. Meg, we're so honored to have been able to share them with you. Thank you. I would now like to turn the program over to Mr. Paul Clement. Mr. Clement is a partner at Bancroft, and before arriving there, he served as the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States from June 2005 until June 2008. Before his confirmation as SG, he served as Acting Solicitor General for nearly a year and as Principal Deputy Solicitor General for over three years. He has argued 80 cases before the United States Supreme Court including McConnell versus FEC, Tennessee versus Lane, Rumsfeld versus Padilla, Credit Suisse versus Billing, United States versus Booker, MGM versus Grokster, ABC versus Ireo, and Hobby Lobby versus Burwell. Indeed, Mr. Clement has argued more Supreme Court cases since 2000 than any lawyer in or out of government. Mr. Clement is a native of Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and a graduate of the Cedarburg Public Schools. He received his bachelor's degree summa cum laude from the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and a master's degree in economics from Cambridge University. He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School where he was the Supreme Court editor of the Harvard Law Review. Following graduation, Mr. Clement clerked for Judge Lawrence Silverman of the DC Circuit and then for Justice Scalia. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome.
So thank you for that introduction and for the applause. This is obviously uh, an incredibly difficult position to be in because this is a large room full of lots of people and no one here, myself included, wants me to be here. Uh, you know, this should have been a night where you were uh, experiencing the rare treat of getting to listen to Justice Scalia and to do something he very much loved, which is to talk to young lawyers uh, about the law. And the loss of Justice Scalia in some ways is made difficult because of how vibrant, how very vibrant he was uh, as, as a force, uh, you know, including three weeks ago. And just the very fact that he would have committed to come down here to give the speech is kind of remarkable if you think about it, because you may not you know, have this calendar firmly in mind, but this is the Saturday between two weeks of a Supreme Court sitting. Um, and most justices uh, would not go out of Washington, D.C., right smack dab in the middle of a Supreme Court sitting uh, for virtually any reason. But when you're 79 years young and you're Justice Scalia, you know, what the heck? Um, you come down to Charlottesville, it's your old stomping grounds. If I could wager a bet, I wouldn't be surprised if he had some idea that maybe he'd stop at Clark Brothers on the way here and shoot a couple of clays. It's all, it's all in sort of a day's work of being Justice Scalia and the incredibly vibrant calendar that he kept uh, his entire career, certainly his entire judicial career. And that is what makes him not being here so difficult, frankly, to fathom and to process, uh, let alone talk about. And, you know, I told a couple of my fellow law clerks uh, last week that in some ways, it was Justice Scalia's kind of final amazing act that having lived an incredibly long and unbelievable professional and personal life, um, at age you know, 79 and 7 eighths, he still ends up leaving us with a feeling that we've just lost like James Dean or somebody in their prime, uh, which indeed we did. Because you know, I can tell you personally, he was still up there dishing it uh, from the bench, uh, you know, just last month. And, you know, he really, from somebody who has known him a fairly long time and has watched him from the unique position of an advocate before him a lot, there was no sense uh, that this was somebody who had lost even a half a mile an hour on his fastball. So it does make it that much more... Uh, difficult to be here, but frankly, it also makes it that much more important uh, to pay tribute to this great man, this great mentor of you know so many people in this room, some of us very directly and very personally, and some of you, uh, you know, as Jack alluded to, through his opinions. So I'd like to try to say a few words in tribute to him. Uh, a few years ago, during the oral argument in a case in the Supreme Court about the scope of Section 1981 liability, not the world's most fascinating subject, but something that Justice Scalia was very engaged in, I was asked by Justice Scalia when I thought, quote, the bad old days ended. Now, by that phrase, I think he had in mind, of course, one of his own earlier opinions, 
when he talked about the bad old days when the court routinely inferred private causes of action in the absence of express language in the statutes creating the cause of action. The answer I was able to give Justice Scalia on that day was, quote, the bad old days ended when you got on the court, Mr. Justice Scalia. <laughs> now that was a fun answer to give. It was fun because not only was it substantively responsive, the bad old days did end when he got on the court. They stopped inferring causes of action in the late 80s and started actually insisting that Congress put causes of action in the actual text of statutes when he got there. So it actually was the right substantive answer, but I also meant it. It was a good day indeed when Justice Scalia joined the court and his elevation to that institution had an enormous impact on any number of the court's areas of the court's jurisprudence, not the least of which is statutory construction. Now, it would be easy to dismiss this as just flattery from a former law clerk. That is why I've come armed, so to speak, with an excerpt from another transcript, which demonstrates that my view is far from idiosyncratic. This transcript is from the argument in the Arlington Central School District against Murphy, which involved the question of whether expert fees were recoverable under a fee-shifting provision that allowed the recovery of attorneys' fees and costs. There was a pretty good textual argument, which the court ultimately accepted, that experts' fees were neither attorneys' fees nor costs within the ordinary meaning of those terms, and so they weren't recoverable. There was also a pretty good argument, based on the conference report, that the conferees thought that expert fees would be recoverable. That set up a classic discussion of text versus legislative history at the oral argument. But in this particular argument, it was Justice Stevens that injected a novel twist on the age-old debate between text and legislative history. Because Justice Stevens emphasized that the particular statute at issue was passed by Congress in 1986, what some might call the bad old days. When the school board's lawyer attempted to dismiss the legislative history and focus instead on the plain text of the statute, Justice Stevens, of all people, objected that, quote, the rule that you cannot look at the legislative history did not really get any emphasis until 1987. <laughs> now his point, the infinitely clever Justice Stevens' point was, well, since the statute was passed in 86, and we didn't get serious about statutory text until 1987, interpreting the 1986 statute, we ought to be able to look at the legislative history, right? Now, after this argument, I was in the audience, and I sort of thought I knew what this meant, but I went to the lawyer in our office who had argued the case as an amicus to make sure there wasn't some kind of watershed attorney's fees opinion or something else that had happened like in 1987 that would have prompted Justice Stevens to ask that question. And of course, what happened in 1987 was that was the year that Justice Scalia started writing statutory construction opinions for the United States Supreme Court. And even Justice Stevens recognized that that changed everything. Now, while Justice Scalia's influence may be most obvious in the area of statutory construction, his impact extended well beyond statutory construction to fundamental questions of how to interpret the Constitution. Sometimes loosely labeled an originalist, what he really advocated was a focus on the original public meaning of the Constitution's text. The ascendancy of his view was particularly obvious in the Heller case involving the Second Amendment and whether it protects an individual right. 
It was obvious in that case not just because four other justices agreed with him that the original public meaning of the Second Amendment protected an individual right to keep and bear arms, but because all nine justices focused on history and text. The entire debate in that very important case took place on Justice Scalia's terms. But while Heller may be the most famous of his constitutional interpre interpretation decisions, or at least among them, I do not think it is the one that most accurately captures his method of constitutional interpretation. For that, I would nominate his opinion for seven members of the court in Crawford against Washington. This opinion begins with an exhaustive historical survey and ends with a host of insights that are the hallmarks of the justices' approach to constitutional interpretation. Until the Crawford decision, the touchstone of the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Confrontation Clause was to focus on reliability. If evidence was reliable, it came in. Never mind whether there was actual confrontation. Reliability was the touchstone. The justice, in his opinion, after conceding that, to be sure, the purpose of the Confrontation Clause was, in fact, to ensure reliable testimony, he then made clear that the text specified the means to that end, and the text, not some broader inquiry into purpose, is what controls. The Sixth Amendment, he wrote, quote, commands not that evidence be reliable, but that reliability be assessed in a particular manner by testing in the crucible of cross-examination. The opinion also reflects the justice's concern with the proper and limited judicial role. He wrote, quote, the Constitution prescribes a procedure for determining the reliability of testimony in criminal trials, and we, the Supreme Court, no less than state courts, lack authority to replace it with one of our own devising. And he also displayed his remarkable ability, surely one of the hallmarks of his writing, to summarize the common sense of a decision in a sentence or two. Quote, dispensing with confrontation because testimony is obviously reliable is akin to dispensing with a jury trial because a defendant is obviously guilty. That is not what the Sixth Amendment prescribes. Now that the Crawford case was a criminal decision is no accident. Justice Scalia's main project in focusing on the text in both statutory and constitutional interpretation was to ensure that judges were faithfully interpreting laws enacted through the democratic process rather than imposing their own policy preferences. In his view, only if justices remained true to their limited role did it make sense to have former lawyers, as opposed to a more representative sample of the population, do the interpretation. He thus delighted in pointing to examples where the results produced by his textual analysis differed from his own personal policy preferences. His votes protecting flag burners and violent video games provide prominent examples where Mr. Justice Scalia and Mr. Scalia had very different views. But perhaps no area of the justice's jurisprudence gave rise to this phenomenon, a phenomenon near and dear to his heart, more often than the criminal law. Justice Scalia would describe himself, in fact, I've heard him describe himself, as a law and order kind of guy. And sometimes that description fit his constitutional decisions. For example, his final opinion, majority opinion for the court, rejected the Eighth Amendment claims of convicted murderers, and he embraced Justice Cardozo's view that the criminal should not go free just because the constable blundered. But more often than many appreciate, Justice Scalia's commitment to textualism put him in the criminal defendant's camp. 
That phenomenon was hardly limited to Crawford or the Confrontation Clause. Although no fan of the exclusionary rule, he extended substantive protections of the Fourth Amendment to thermal imaging devices, GPS tracking devices, and smartphones, even though the framers could not have conceived of any of those three. Fueled by Fifth Amendment due process concerns, he led the court's charge to eliminate the amorphous concept of honest services fraud, whatever that means. And Justice Scalia's belief in the Sixth Amendment jury trial guarantee led him to join a host of opinions revolutionizing criminal sentencing by preventing criminal sentences to be lengthened by facts found by judges and not by juries. One such case involved a governmental effort to overturn a reduced sentence. Because the lower courts had substantially reduced the sentence, the defendant was actually able to attend the Supreme Court argument in person, which is relatively unusual. At one point during the questioning, when Justice Scalia was being particularly brutal to the government's advocate and pointing out all of the various factors that actually supported a lenient sentence in this case, the criminal defendant actually tugged on the sleeve of his lawyer, who was sitting next to him in the court, and he pointed at Justice Scalia and he said, he so gets me. Now, indeed, while, while Mr. Scalia, the law and order guy, might not have gotten that particular defendant, Justice Scalia, interpreting the text of the Sixth Amendment, most certainly did. Now, of course, Justice Scalia's influence goes well beyond the court. He had a unique influence on the academy, profoundly influencing what law professors write and what law students read. That was part and parcel of why I'm sure he wanted to be here tonight and accepted this invitation. Now, as to what professors write, I did my own highly unscientific survey by searching the title field of journals and law reviews on Westlaw for the exact phrase, Justice Scalia, in the title. Now, this brought up 159 separate hits. There's 159 law reviews that are so focused on Justice Scalia and his jurisprudence that he makes the title of the law review article. Now, to be sure, not all of those articles are written in praise of the justices' work. <laughs> but I think Justice Scalia has inspired so much academic writing in large measure because he is so clear about his professed methodology. I mean, at least he has one. But it's, he's, he was clear from... from But he was clear about that professed methodology throughout his career. In other words, he gave academics a clear target. Now, based on my quick survey, Justice Scalia inspired not only volume, but creativity in those titles. The interested reader can choose from Mr. Scalia's Neighborhood, <laughs> Justice Scalia and his Meta Canon of Absurdity, or my, or my personal favorite, quote, conducting the Constitution, Justice Scalia, Textualism, and the Eroica Symphony. <laughs> but perhaps even more important than his influence on what professors write is his influence on what law students read. An entire generation of law students have now been taught the law in part by reading Scalia opinions, many of them dissents, in their case books. And given the clarity of the justice's memorable prose style, I think the justice's opinion have had a disproportionate impact. 
I've had any number of law students across the ideological spectrum confess that they nearly always read the Scalia opinion, whether majority, dissent, or concurrence first, to understand what the case is all about. <laughs> Only then do they attempt to read the other opinions in the case. And it is hard to blame them. Who among us would rather read about some three-pronged doctrinal test than about 60,000 naked Hoosiers, or, or even nine people selected at random from the Kansas City phone book. And the justice's colorful prose could certainly have serious consequences. I do not think the lemon test has ever recovered from being compared to a B-movie ghoul. <laughs> and, and I will say, and, and, and Jack alluded this, to this, that you know, the very fact that Justice Scalia was writing these opinions in this clear and memorable style made a tremendous, tremendous difference. I mean, when I was in law school, Justice Scalia had only been on the court for about three years when I first got to law school. So the case books were filled with decisions where Justice Brennan wrote the majority opinion and Chief Justice Berger wrote the dissent. And I'd read these opinions and I would think, yes, I must be wrong. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I look at this and I, and I think Justice Brennan's got to be wrong, but then I read the dissent, and, uh, you know, I, I, and, 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 and the experience that law students have had ever since of, you know, having Justice Scalia engaged in the debate and engaged in his inimitable way and making clear uh, uh, a, a, a profound vision of how to interpret both t statutory text and constitutional text, I think, makes a tremendous, tremendous difference. Now, there are those that criticize the justice for writing too many memorable dissents and not enough forgettable majority opinions. They suggest that with his considerable personal charm, he could have been more influential if he had forged more compromise and, and, and pulled a few rhetorical punches. Such critics fundamentally mistake Justice Scalia's project. He believed the Constitution provided clear answers, such that there were clearly discernible right and wrong answers to constitutional questions. Yielding the principle so that his opinion for the majority was only partially wrong was simply not in his DNA. More to the point, Justice Scalia was playing the long game. He was less concerned about winning individual cases than in setting forth clear principles that could stand the test of time. As a result, I am confident that law students will still be reading Scalia opinions a century from now. And I think Justice Scalia, frankly, was more concerned with that simple fact than whether those 20th century, 22nd century law students would be reading a majority or a dissent. Justice Scalia also had a profound impact on oral argument before the Supreme Court. In the 1970s and early 80s, it was common for Supreme Court advocates to be asked only a handful of questions during an entire Supreme Court argument. That changed dramatically when Justice Scalia joined the court. He started asking questions in his first argument and never stopped. Other justices followed suit, lest the new guy take up all the airtime. And things have never been the same since. Argument before the Supreme Court is now the art of answering questions. And Justice Scalia's questions were pointed and asked in his inimitable way. Justice Scalia came to each argument prepared to fully engage with counsel. 
To paraphrase the justice, when it came to oral argument, this wolf came as a wolf. <laughs> Every lawyer had fair warning that they best come fully prepared and tread carefully when invoking legislative history. But at the same time that he made oral argument at the Supreme Court a lively affair, he also made clear that it need not be dour. Justice Scalia injected humor into his colloquies with counsel and with other justices and asked many questions with a, t a twinkle in his eye. He was routinely ranked the court's funniest justice as judged by the court reporter's need to note laughter in the oral argument transcript. <laughs> Earlier this week, I had my first argument before a Supreme Court that did not include Justice Scalia. With a career spent predominantly as a law professor and public servant, the justice did not accumulate a stock portfolio that required his recusal very often. So he's actually on the bench for every other Supreme Court argument that I've ever made. His absence on the bench this week was palpable. I was prepared for the absence of his own questions, but what I failed to fully anticipate was the absence of the counter questions that would be prompted by his questions. And so once you subtract out both the questions that Justice Scalia would have asked and the counter questions that those questions would have prompted, you subtract quite a bit from oral argument before the Supreme Court. I had my first oral argument before Justice Scalia 24 years ago, and it did not go well. <laughs> he summoned me from Cambridge, Massachusetts to interview for a position as one of his law clerks, and he peppered me with questions during the entire interview. The answers needed a lot of work, but somehow the justice managed to hire me. The clerkship interview did prepare me for the clerkship because one of the great joys of clerking for Justice Scalia was that so much of the interaction with the justice was oral. Now, I suppose that's partially by necessity. He certainly did not need law clerks to help him with his opinions. Uh, indeed, I often suspected that the only reason he bothered to ask us for drafts was because he hadn't figured out how to format a word-perfect document. But he always engaged his clerks in vigorous oral, disc oral discussion of the cases, which resembled nothing so much as an oral argument before the court itself. I remember an experience very early then in my post-clerkship legal career in which I rather recklessly told a prominent general counsel that I thought his view of a legal matter was all wrong and eventually persuaded him on the issue. As I walked out of that encounter, I thought to myself, what were you thinking? That was like career suicide. That was really stupid. But it occurred to me that the reason I had the courage to actually confront that general counsel and forcefully tell him that I actually thought his view of the law was wrong was because I'd actually gotten the opportunity to do that once or twice with Justice Scalia in chambers, and I survived the experience. And as I think many an oral advocate before the court, and certainly I think almost every one of the justices' law clerks would say, that once you've dealt with the experience of wrestling on a hard legal question with Justice Scalia, nothing else in the law is terribly intimidating. Now let me close with a story and then uh, with a parting thought or two. So this is a story I first heard about a decade ago uh, from Judge Jay Bybee. And uh, I 
called them up yesterday, actually, to confirm I had the details right and to make sure that, uh, that, that I had his permission to tell the story. Uh, he both gave me permission to tell the story and swears the story is true. So a few years back, Justice Scalia visited LSU's law school, where Judge Bybee was then teaching. Now, it's not every day that a Supreme Court justice makes it to Baton Rouge. I think there was good hunting near. Uh, this, but this event was quite an event on campus, and numerous law students gathered for their chance to meet the justice. But there was one student in particular who was really intent on meeting the justice because he was a particularly big fan. Now, there was a reception line, and the justice, in his gracious and inimitable way, was talking you know, briefly to all of the students as they sort of, you know, this line sort of funneled past him. And this one student who was really intent on meeting the justice came through the line, and, 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 and Judge Bybee happened to be right behind him so he could overhear this interaction. And this law student was pretty nervous, frankly, about having the chance to meet his judicial idol. So he sort of sheepishly came up to the justice and said, you know, Mr. Justice, it's, it's really, really a pleasure to, to, to meet you. And, you know, the justice had probably heard that like a hundred times, you know, that night already. And so very graciously shook his hand and, you know, wished him luck. And then the student sort of had one other line that actually Justice Scalia hadn't heard, I don't think, earlier that night. And he said, the student said to the justice, Justice, I'm, I'm, I'm such a big fan of you and your jurisprudence. I, I actually named my, my, my fish after you. My, my, <laughs> I, I named my pet fish after you. And, and so the justice got this twinkle in his eye, and, and he said, uh, so you called it Nino? Uh, and, and, and the student said, no, no, I, I wouldn't be that familiar. I, I named my fish Mr. Justice Scalia. <laughs> and the, the, justice, the justice thought this was great, and he, talk, he, he talked to the student for a little bit more, and then, and then, you know, they had to get on with the rest of the line, and... Judge Bybee was also pretty intrigued by this. So he, he came up to the student afterwards, um, and he said, he said, he asked him, so, so do you like have, you know, other fish named after justices? Do you, do you like have the whole court in your, in your fishbowl? And, and, and the law student said, no, I, I, only, I only named, a, you know, fish after justices I like. And, and so then, you know, Judge Bybee was, understandably intrigued at this point because he wanted to know, you know, which justices got a fish and, 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 and which justices didn't get a fish. And uh, so he asked him, so, you know, which, justices, which fish do you have after justices, named after justices? And then the student looked at him and said, well, actually, Professor, then Professor Bybee, um, Mr. Justice Scalia is the, the only fish I have left. He, he killed all the other justices. <laughs> Now, that, that's such a great story, and, and, and it is true. I, I have it from, you know, Judge Bybee is not the kind of guy to sort of lie about something. I mean, he's, he's a pretty straight arrow. So I have it on very good authority that it's true. Um, but I do want I, I to close by, note, by noting that, you know, Mr. Justice Scalia, the fish, um, may well have killed the other justices. But one of the great things about Justice Scalia is that he actually got along incredibly well with the other justices, and particularly his friendships with 
Justice Ginsburg and with uh, Justice Kagan more recently, you know, sort of friendships sort of across sort of normal voting patterns in some of the most closely watched cases, you know, is really, I, I think, one of the kind of enduring things that he left. I mean, obviously, to Justice Scalia, the single most important thing that he, he left was his family. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing that some of the family is here. I mean, you know, Justice Scalia took everything to the nth degree, which is why that family was so large and so wonderful. And I think, far and away, I think that was what, you know, is most important. And I mean, as much as the law clerks loved the justices, you know, we understood we were the second family, we were not the first family, and the justice always made that clear. Uh, but the justice obviously also left this unbelievable wealth of judicial opinions that will live beyond anybody in this room, in my, in my humble opinion. Uh, but he also left these enduring friendships. He gave people a model of how you can absolutely destroy somebody in a dissent and then turn around and invite him to dinner and or plan a you know an, a gathering to the opera, and I think particularly as you sit in Washington D.C. as I do in the weeks since the justice's passing, I think that's a model that the justice leaves all of us that everybody in Washington sort of needs to relearn. And if there's one more thing that the justice could sort of convey, I think to this you know generation, I think it would be that. I mean, he was a warrior. But he was a happy warrior. I mean, he was a fun person to talk to at a cocktail party. And I don't know how many, how many people you know, who came into a meeting with the justice or a social interaction with him, sort of starting with hostility to the justice based on what they thought his judicial views were or what his opinion on this, that, or the other thing was and left that interaction thinking, that is the greatest guy on the planet. And that's, I think, a sense that, you know, it is, it is, I think, important for folks that admire the justice and admire his legacy to, you know, embrace, you know, what he left us intellectually. But I also think that that personal model of being able to have long and enduring friendships with, you know, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Kagan, and others on the other side of the aisle is something that is also part of his legacy and a very kind of needed uh, lesson for a lot of people to learn these days. Well, that's what I have to share. I think Gene uh, told me that the, the plan here was to take a couple of questions if we, if we still have time or an appetite for that, so happy to do it. So applause is not a question. So, um, yes, you do. Um, oh, well, uh, I do have to ask, and I say this as a fellow opera lover, uh, did, he, uh, did he actually play opera recordings in, in chambers? I, you know, I did not hear a lot of opera coming from, you know, his, his, his chambers. Um, you know, he certainly talked about it. I was, you know, I was, I, I've come to find opera is an acquired taste, and I've sort of come around, but at the time that I was uh, clerking for him, I was not, 
you know, I was listening to Nirvana while he was while he was listening to to Verde. Um, but uh, but you know, I, I think if if anything, he probably heard more Nirvana coming from my work area than than I heard Verde coming from his. So. Well, you know, I I I don't want to single anybody else single anybody out. I mean, I think that you know the justice has inspired a lot of lawyers and a lot of judges. Um, you know, he has some law clerks who have gone on to be judges. He's have some law clerks that have gone on to be lawyers. Um, but I don't think there's anybody who can quite write like him, um, because you know, and, and 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 nor should they. I mean, you know, it's 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 his style. Um, and it certainly, I think, has influenced a lot of people, especially, I think, you know, if you clerked for the justice and got to sort of watch his, you know, Justice Scalia, the stylist, up close, you can't help but take away some of that. But it's his style, and I think the justice would be the first to say uh, that everybody has to have their own style. The one thing I will say, though, is that is something he just had. I mean, I don't know when he got it, but it wasn't at the D.C. Circuit and it wasn't at the Supreme Court. Uh, a, a couple of months ago, I was preparing for a Supreme Court argument involving a sovereign immunity issue. And so I dug up a law review article that Justice Scalia had written when he was an associate professor of law, um, maybe, maybe here. And uh, I think it was published in the Michigan Law Review, and it was on you know the scintillating subject of sovereign immunity and administrative law cases. And he's got this; he's he's making this point that two aspects of the court's doctrine that seemed separate actually mutually reinforced each other. And the way that he conveyed it in the Law Review article was to conjure up this image of a small child uh, watching the circus and seeing the person on the, walking the tightrope. And the young person says, well, isn't that amazing? Not only can that person walk on the tightrope, but he can carry this huge beam in his hands, and he can do that without losing his balance. And you know, the, the vivid imagery of that, you know, to me, it just was great to come across this little passage because you know, it just presaged you know, the talking about the Dormant Commerce Clause as being an exer exercise in trying to figure out whether the rock is heavier than the line is long, or you know, whatever, whatever you know, anybody else's sort of favorite sort of Scalia sort of line to just capture something. Because again, it's, you know, anybody can sort of throw out some colorful rhetoric, but it's when the colorful rhetoric just destroys the argument on the other side or just lays bare what the author thinks about a particular area of the law. I mean, that's, that's a gift that I don't think that you can teach, and unfortunately, I don't think it's even contagious. You can't catch it just from being in close proximity to the justice. Um, you know, 
If he did, I probably couldn't talk about it anyways. Um, you know, I will say though that you know Justice Scalia was not somebody who was when you know when you interacted with him was sort of you know chock full of nostalgia. I mean, you know, he was really, really engaged in kind of you know what he was doing, and you know if you wanted, I mean, you know, he would talk about sort of his kind of you know what he did as a law professor or what he did, you know, as even as a, you know, as a lawyer at Jones Day kind of back in the day, if you asked him about it. I mean, he was happy to sort of talk to you about it if you asked him about it. But uh, you really had to ask him about it because he was, you know, so fully vibrant in the present and so engaged in kind of what he was doing. And, you know, even then, you know, he was, you know, he was constantly, you know, planning, you know, some trip at the same time as he was, you know, kind of conceptualizing the next, you know, opinion that he was writing. So he was so, I think, focused on kind of the current project and what he was doing that he really didn't spend a lot of time sort of talking about, you know, kind of, you know, what happened to him in grade school or something like that. That really wasn't a feature of what he would kind of naturally uh, sort of volunteer or talk about. Uh, well, you know, it's it's so hard. It's so hard. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I, clearly you've got to put the Morrison v. Olson dissent uh, on that list. I mean, I think, you know, as, as, as Jack alluded to, um, you know, the justice's belief in the structural constitution and the separation of powers in particular was really paramount. So, you know, Morrison, I think, would, would have to be uh, on that list. Um, you know, as, as I alluded to, I would certainly put uh, Crawford uh, on that list. I think it was, you know, I do think, I can't remember exactly where it was, but I was at some public occasion where the justice actually counted that among his favorite opinions. And I do think it really just, it's so crisply captured because the court's jurisprudence was like, oh, I know what the purpose of this clause is. So forget the text, let's just pursue the purpose. And it really took Justice Scalia in that opinion to really remind him that no, it's, it's the confrontation clause, it's not the reliability clause. And uh, you know, in similar way, you know, I do think just because every justice was an originalist in Heller, um, you know, that, would, that, that would have to, have to go on the list. Um, you know, I suppose if I were going to round it out, you know, I might, you know, that the, the line I just quoted from one of his Dormant Commerce Clause opinions is one of the ones that finds itself into so many of my briefs um, when I'm sort of confronted with a balancing test of some stripe. So I'd put that on there. Um, and then I guess as a matter of, you know, point of personal privilege, um, when I was a law clerk, I worked on, a, on an opinion called uh, Curious Joel about a, uh, it was an establishment clause case, and uh, it was, you know, it involved, you know, an, an effort by a sort of nominally public school district, but it was in an area, it was in a, in a town in New York that was actually, you know, 100% basically Hasidic Jewish. And so they'd done all these things in the public school to accommodate the sort of religious faith of, and it was actually, you know, it, you know basically it was all, the, all the other students were, were were educated in private schools, so the only public school students were all um, disabled, and 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 so that was what the case was about. And you know, he just sort of you know all all the justice, but started that opinion with this great sort of talk about you know how you know this 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 minority sect of Jews came to this country with the modest hope 
of religious freedom, and yet they find themselves so closely aligned with uh, with with Manon that they uh, you know have and the powers that be up in Albany have established them as the state religion of of New York, and it just you know it's it was just a classic example of of the justice taking an opinion and with his own unique prose just kind of pointing out. The, what he thought was the absurdity of the majority's resolution of the case. So that's that that that's my list. If I had more time to think about it, I'm sure I would uh, I would I would substitute one or one or the other. But uh, that's what makes those desert island lists so much fun. Yeah, last question, I guess. Well, see, this is an interesting aspect of this because you know I clerked for the justice in 1993 and 1994. And I, I, you know, I, I could have the time wrong on this, but I don't think I do. I have this pretty vivid memory of the justice coming in and telling us he was going on this hunting trip um, with, you know, I, th I think it might have been with um, with Gene's father-in-law um, or something like that. But he was going on a hunting trip, and he really hadn't done a lot of hunting at this point, and he wasn't sure what to make of it, and was kind of like kind of telling a joke on himself about, you know. Here's this New Yorker, you know, going on this hunting trip. You know, I hope I survive. And, and, and you know, and, and he had a bunch of law clerks that year who weren't hunters. So we didn't know quite what to make of it um, ourselves. Um, and so that is really like, you know, Leroy and the Chambers and all, all of that came later. Um, and so, you know, in, in, in a sense, so I didn't, I didn't have any hunting trips. The one thing that I had that was, you know, made the, the, the clerkship kind of, you know, uniquely special for me personally was that, um, you know, I was the only one of the four law clerks that year that had any affinity or ability to play racket sports. Um, and so at this point, uh, you know, Justice Scalia hadn't quite taken up the hunting thing, but he was still playing squash and he was still playing tennis. And, you know, you know on, on average, you know, about once a week, we'd go out and play either squash or tennis. And it was, you know, it was a very nice time to kind of bond with him in sort of a different sort of level. Uh, and, you know, he was very fond of showing me the kind of unique attributes of the Sicilian drop shot in tennis. Um, so that is, that, is, that, you know, that, that is one of the real fond memories I have and sort of takes the place of hunting trips, I suppose, the Sicilian drop shot. Well, thank you very much. It's been great to be with you.